Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm in the mood for a little more Terrence McKenna. <laughs> so I'm going to pick up with a workshop that we heard the first part of in my podcast number 463, uh, oh, a little over a month ago. And just one word of caution here. Please keep in mind that this talk was given in February of 1996, which means that uh, some of the information, uh, particularly about Ibogaine and Salvia Divinorum, the legality of Salvia in particular, well, that's almost 20 years out of date now. So while most of what Terrence says here is accurate, don't take everything that you are about to hear as being the current state of affairs. Car somewhere and talking about all this. And I said, which do you prefer? And he said, oh, I definitely prefer LSD. And this is a Swiss chemist, uh, very proper, very correct, Central European intellectual. And I said, why, why do you prefer LSD? And he said, uh, uh, the psilocybin is too animate. And I said, you mean there's somebody in there? <laughs> and he said, yes. <clears throat> and apparently that challenged his categories sufficiently that he found the LSD more, more psychoanalytic, more reassuring, more drug-like, I would say. I mean, LSD does what you think a psychedelic would do if you've never taken one. Uh, psilocybin, on the other hand, <laughs> can surprise you. Yeah? Well, he, he characterized, he discovered the absolute structure of psilocybin. He can reasonably claim to be the father of both. Uh, Is it synthesized? Psilocybin? Yes. As an exercise. It's rarely, it's not an underground thing. It's active in the 25 to 45 milligram range. To make tens of thousands of doses, you would have to have a very sophisticated, large-scale industrial pharmaceutical laboratory. See, the thing about LSD that makes it unique as a commodity, not as a drug, but as a commodity, is that it takes so little to get you off. I mean, there are, uh, uh, what, 10,000 doses in a... No, one milligram... Yes, there's ten, two thousand doses in a gram. No, very, very, very few drugs are active in that range. Um, okay, so in terms of different kinds of properties, uh, so can be more animal, else be more psychoanalytic. Are there any that are statistically associated with sort of harsh experiences? Well, it's such a, a great uh, sales pitch for any drug that nearly every drug has gone through a phase of being hailed as a love drug of some sort. Uh, marijuana, LSD, MDMA, uh, LSD. Uh, some people would say, well, some, they all claim, but some are. 
that hasn't been my experience. A great deal has to do with expectation, set, setting, and how you are led into it. Another really fascinating thing, I haven't tried this with all of these, but with psilocybin that is puzzling and worthy of comment, is that you can say to psilocybin, be MDMA, and it will. It will just switch. It will dismiss the dancing mice, the space people, and uh, get, get you thinking about how much you love your mother, your brother, your sister, your landlord, your uh, representative in Congress, uh, whatever. So, uh, you know, it's, it's good to have the, the scientific, pharmacological, reductionist approach but you have to sort of hold it simultaneously with the understanding that in the realm of mind, uh, you know, mind leads. And uh, one of the things that I've grappled with is, you know, when you get out on one of these things and it's very, very shaky or you're having a hard time, you can always, if you're well-educated in these things, go back to the chemical data and say, well, I only took 25 milligrams of psilocybin. Nobody has ever died from this. It's impossible to die from this, so forth and so on. But the deeper truth is, uh, there's this horrifying quote from Jung. I think it's in um, The Structure of the Unconscious or something, where he says, uh, uh, the psyche has a thousand ways to terminate a life that has become meaningless. <laughs> and so you, you realize, you know, it's uh, stepping off the curb in front of the bus. You're responsible if you do this. This is happening because a decision is being made in your structure. Uh, so it's fine to have the pharmacological data, but you also really have to respect these things. And it is perfectly legitimate to pray for mercy and forgiveness uh, <laughs> in the tight spots. In, in connection with the heart question, uh-huh. I just finished Food of the Gods and had to, I was totally drawn to the Bawiti tribe in Africa. And their, oh, yeah. Their plant, which I can't remember the Latin name. A tabernanthi boga. Yes, and, the, and the, the reputation of it as, a, as, a, as an aphrodisiac, which was really kind of overshadowed in your literature by what it did for pair bonding, how it was used in that culture to, to bond newlyweds and avoid divorce, which was e- easily attainable but very stressful because of negotiations on the return of a wife's dowry. And I was very impressed with that use of that psychedelic. Yeah, I mean, this isn't worth talking about because you'll be hearing more about all this. For uh, Since the middle of the last century, there has been this use in Gabon and Zaire of this plant called Tabernanthe boga. It is, uh, contains a unique alkaloid, ibogaine, and several cogeners, isomers, and stereo and antiomers. But the basic thing is ibogaine. And uh, it's psychedelic. It is. It has a reputation as an aphrodisiac, although this is a very complicated 
culture-based phenomenon. I mean, what is an aphrodisiac? Would you know it if you saw it? What does it mean? Does it mean prolonged erection? Does it mean heightened orgasm? Does it mean deeper empathy? Does it mean all of these? What what would an aphrodisiac actually be like? Is cocaine an aphrodisiac? Is marijuana an aphrodisiac? The ibogaine... I've taken it a number of times. It is a very interesting and different from some of these other things. Several things about it are, that are different. Um, first of all, it, it raises the concept of comfortable almost to a metaphysical absolute. I mean, this may relate to its aphrodisiac quality. You simply feel so comfortable that uh, it, it's astonishing. Uh, there is some kind... And, and if you're in a situation where sexual carryings on are a possibility, it is very supportive, and it does extend erection, and it does extend orgasm. But more than that, it seems to create... And this is a kind of a paradox when you think of it as an aphrodisiac. It achieves this aphrodisiac quality through a, a strange kind of distancing so that you are very cool. You are very cool. And hence you have enormous self-control and uh, uh, it, it, lovemaking becomes extremely unhurried. Um, a thing I didn't like about the Ibogaine that has not been talked about much in the literature, but every single person I've ever talked to who's taken it has agreed that this is going on, is it does something to your optical pathway that I don't think is deep brain. It causes a shimmering, a kind of, a kind of shuddering in the visual field that persists for... 24, 36, 72 hours after you take it. And uh, night driving it becomes absolutely impossible because every light leaves a huge smear in your vision. And after a few minutes on the freeway, you just have to pull over and knock it off. Now, the people who've been using this for centuries don't probably do a lot of freeway driving. <laughs> they do have ceremonies where they, uh, where they light and extinguish candles at various points. And, uh, but the way Iboga is taken in, in among the Fang is fairly terrifying because they have this notion that they say you must break your head open uh, once in your life of taking it. And uh, <clears throat> above, well, they teaspoon the raw ground root, and above 10 grams of that, you become semi-anesthetized, and then they force-feed it to you. Uh, and there have been a number of deaths uh, recorded uh, from massive forced feeding of iboga. I take four grams in a capsule, and uh, it's my I have my hands full for the evening, definitely. <laughs> so the thought of taking tablespoon after tablespoon of this is 
is fairly daunting. And then the last thing to say about it and how you will probably hear about it is right now it's having a huge vogue because a number of people who have have come forward to say that it completely interrupts heroin addiction. Uh, and uh, they are have been convincingly enough able to make this case that NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, is <clears throat> now running trials in Florida. And uh, uh, there's a clinic in Holland and there's a clinic in Belize. At this thing I just came from in Mexico, there was a guy there who had been a junkie his whole life and he had just spent two weeks in this Ibogaine clinic in uh, in Belize. I couldn't tell whether it was working or not. When he arrived at the seminar in Mexico, he looked like he was at death's door. I mean, he, the first morning, fell off his chair in a meeting like this. But by the end of the week... He looked perfectly normal and was a very chatty, active member of the group. Now, I can't tell whether he kicked or scored. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But... (laughs) Now, wasn't there also, uh, I believe in Thailand, a a drug that was a plant uh, substance that inhibited... That's right. That's an interesting case. That's a plant native to Thailand and southern Burma, amusingly enough, because that's the very center of the world heroin production, uh, called uh, Mitrogyna speciosa. That is a strange and not sufficiently researched situation. I mean, here you have Thailand, heroin everywhere, $5 a gram, addicts, social problem, this and that, and they have this plant which uh, supposedly interrupts heroin addiction. The Thai government is furiously engaged in exterminating and persecuting this plant and claims that uh, it's highly addictive. The plant in Thai is called Kratom. Highly addictive and uh, has a peculiar presentation in that it blackens your face. And so Kratom addicts can be picked out on the street. And interesting that we were talking last night about the black face of the angel of melancholy. Uh, I don't have a strong opinion about all this. It's an interesting idea to fight drug addiction with drugs. Certainly from a chemist's point of view, it's a reasonable strategy because, I don't know if you realize, but drugs to work have to go to places in your brain called receptor sites. And you can think of these receptor sites as rows and rows of locks. And you can think of the drugs as little keys floating in your bloodstream and they fit into the lock and when they turn it, then they are complexed to the receptor site and no other key can get in there. And these receptor sites have different affinities for different kinds of compounds. So, for example, uh, if the receptor site has a low affinity for heroin and a high affinity for substance X, 
and you simultaneously inject heroin and substance X, no heroin will be activated. It will simply be cycled out of your bloodstream because the, uh, the, more, uh, the higher affinity compound will replace it. Uh, a more dramatic example would be the way DMT works. Most of these hallucinogens, the so-called indole hallucinogens, are what are called serotonin antagonists. That means that they are competing with this brain neurotransmitter 5-hydroxytryptamine serotonin for the serotonin bond site. But DMT has uh, order of magnitude greater affinity for the bond site than serotonin. So when you smoke DMT, the DMT just streaks to these receptors and fills all available uh, slots for a few minutes until the brain can get organized to deanimate, dealkylate, neutralize these compounds, shunt them to the urine, and, and get them out of there. So this whole new class of antidepressant medication, which is serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right, um, Prozac, right, Zoloft, things like that. How would they interact if you took a psychedelic? And they don't interact very well. I mean, we're understanding more and more about this. If you're taking any of these, uh, you are you probably should not take a psychedelic. Uh, in most cases, if you take a psychedelic, you will simply have a very diminished and unimpressive trip. But in some <clears throat> percentage of cases, it, it can bring on a hypertensive crisis. The, the way these serotonin reuptake inhibitors work is a little different. See, here's what's going on. Normally, in the synapse, you all understand that the synapse is this place where one nerve uh, clamps to another and there is a space between them called the synaptic cleft, which is a very complicated chemical environment. An electrical signal coming down the nerve, when it reaches the the, um, clamping portion, these vesicles, small, think of them as bubbles or membranes filled with various neurotransmitters, are released. And the neurotransmitters flood into the synaptic cleft to allow the electrochemical signal to continue to the next nerve. And in ordinary metabolism, after a few milliseconds, the serotonin, which has allowed this signal to be transmitted, is reuptaken. In other words, it, it flashes into the synaptic cleft, the signal passes through, and the serotonin is pulled back into this storage mode. What Prozac and these other compounds do is they inhibit reuptake. So what that means is that you have very serotonin-juicy synaptic connections then. And this seems to feed back into our psychology as uh, the feeling of well-being and so forth associated with Prozac. 
Uh, I have my own theory about these things, and I can tell you in a moment. Uh, see, we have a funny way of thinking about ourselves. If it's the mind, it involves psychologists, psychiatrists, shrinks of some sort. If it's the body, then it's allopathic physical medicine. Uh, I, I have taken Prozac at times and found it very interesting. And my analysis of it is that, uh, and this ties in with a larger theory of mine about human evolution that we may get into, but basically we are tropical creatures. We evolved in very close to the equator and uh, living in the temperate zone as we do, there is this thing called seasonal light deficit disorder, which is nothing more than the extreme form of what we all experience every year called winter time. And uh, the feeling I had on Prozac was uh, that it was summer. That was simply, in a nutshell, what the feeling was. And so I think that we have evolved, uh, we are carrying a kind of recessive gene or something. We don't produce enough serotonin for the, to be living above 20 degrees latitude. So we all are subject to depression but we culturally manage it. I mean, I, I know, you know, every Labor Day, they say, well, now everybody's going back to school, summer's over, the party's over. Well, if you're in Hawaii, this seems very artificial. You say, you know, it's summer forever. But, but in the media coming from the mainland, you can tell that the whole mass mind is being massaged toward the idea of the coming of winter. So, uh, you know, I don't know all there is to know about Prozac by a long shot, and it seems to affect different people differently, and Zoloff something else. But I think that's a very fertile area for research, and we need some kind of serotonin-adjusting medication meditation, technique, therapy, dietary supplement, or whatever. And I don't think people should diagnose or consider themselves neurotic or mentally ill or somehow diminished if you have to take Prozac. I think it's a genetic thing related to this light uh, deficit syndrome. It's a complicated situation no psychedelics. They're also competing uh, uh, for, for these same receptor sites. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big advocate of mixing drugs anyway. I mean, if you really want to get out into unknown territory where there is the potential for danger, then start pouring these things together, you know. And, and maybe I just have a fragile constitution. I mean, watching some of these people in Mexico. I mean, as I said to somebody this morning, the image I took away from one evening was of, uh, of this woman who channels angels 
holding a syringe of ketamine in one hand and a bottle of salsa tequila in the other and saying, let's party! <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> uh -huh. I wonder if you've uh, heard anything about there's an antipsychotic uh, new class of agent called Risperdal and uh, an interesting situation a, a woman I know has lupus and was experiencing paranoid hallucinations visual hallucinations but also just thought process paranoia uh, and the question was was it entirely from the lupus or did it have anything to do with the marijuana she smoked or the cocaine she snorted now she was prescribed Risperdal, which is fairly new, and apparently after taking it, it immediately stopped these paranoid hallucinations, and she still gets high, but she doesn't have those negative effects. Have you heard I, I don't know what that drug is. That's very interesting. It's been out about a year or two. Cocaine, the, you know, the dark side of cocaine is very paranoid. The reason people don't always agree with that assessment is because the style of taking cocaine is hypersocial. But years ago, I used to play around with it, and I had some friends in Berkeley, and I would go down and we would score a gram and have a big evening. But then I always had this two-hour drive home to Sonoma County and driving along the darkened freeway in the middle of the night carrying this load and watching it, I couldn't recognize myself. I could not believe how dark and peculiar the fantasy and the, the expectation was. So, uh, you know, it's a funny thing the way people relate to drugs. Many people um, take them in environments that couldn't be better designed to suppress the effect of the drug. For instance, uh, crowded singles bars, noisy social environments with everybody hitting on each other and loud music and lots of activity and maybe lots of uh, vigorous dancing. Well, this is an environment designed to suppress drug effects. Uh, I mean, you may get loaded to some degree, but to really see what these things do, you need a, an atmosphere of quiet, sensory deprived darkness and then you know you can actually tease the stuff out we in the west probably coming down through freud and before have the idea that introspection of all types is considered morbid it's considered narcissistic i mean a person drinking with their friends somewhere that's considered a pleasant picture but a person alone in a room taking a drug is considered a picture of alienation and uh, severe dislocation from the social matrix and, and so forth. Uh, I've always done drugs that way. Uh, alone, high doses, low sensory input. And... Uh, you know, it's not for everybody, but it certainly throws these things into uh, high relief. Solvent. Oh, so good point. Yes. 
good point. We haven't mentioned this, or I just mentioned it, but this is something new and very interesting and very challenging to everybody's categories, which is, uh, in the last couple of years, a new psychedelic has been discovered that has surprising implications chemically, psychologically, botanically, and every other way. And here's the story. For 30, 40 years, there has been a plant, and actually it's on this list, it's at the top of the list, Salvia divinorum. And it was carried in all the ethnobotanical descriptions of what's going on in Mexico. It's a powerful name for a dirt. Oh, yeah. Salvia divinorum, the diviner's mint. Salvia is the mint family, always easily identified by the square stem. If you're a taxonomist, all mints have square stems. This is a plant that grows in the mountains of Oaxaca, south of Mexico City. And for years and years, anthropologists reported that in the absence of mushrooms, certain Indian groups used this plant but no one could ever get off on it. And when you do this little field test called the Dragendorf reagent test for alkaloids, it always came up alkaloid negative. Well, uh, all psychoactive drugs of this category that we're talking about are alkaloids. So in the field, when you test and get alkaloid negative, and the Indian is standing there telling you this is a hallucinogen, the tendency is to revert to the white man's superior attitude and just say, well, these people are naive, uh, this really doesn't have anything in it, uh, it's somehow in their folk knowledge or their culture, they're just confused, basically, it doesn't do anything. Well, then about six or seven years ago, a friend of many of us here, uh, Brett Blosser, who was working in this area, he finally got these Indians to cut loose with this stuff and show him how to do it. And basically, as is often the case with these ethno-botanicals, it's that the route of administration is so horrendous that unless somebody showed you and insisted, you would never put yourself through such an ordeal to get loaded. Uh, and what they showed him was they said, here's how we do it. We take 13 pairs of leaves, and these leaves can be the size of my hand, so imagine 26 of them, roll it up into a cigar that's about like that and about like that, and then they said, and then we eat it like rabbits. And meaning small bites, chew, 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 hold in the mouth, chew, chew, chew. Well, this stuff is bitter beyond belief. I mean, it's horrible. One, fresh, fresh, fresh. But he came back saying that he had done this. And, you know, he was a DMT test pilot. He knew, he knew his way around the neighborhood. And he came back and said, you know, I sank to my knees. It was incredibly powerful. It was uh, so forth and so on. Well, so then people started playing with it. And what the literature had always said is kind of a covering their ass position was if there is something there, 
it must be that it is so unstable that hours after picking the plant, it completely disappears and turns into something inactive. Well, um, a fellow in Los Angeles who, I don't know if he wants his name used, so I won't mention it, but some of you know him, an amateur, one of us, somebody who's been to many of these things, just decided the only way to get to the bottom of this is forget all that has been said ignore all this stuff about how it's unstable and it's this and it's that. Let's just go for it with a standard uh, high molecular weight solvent extraction and see what we come up with. So he did that. And he came up with a white crystalline material. And, you know, there are old pharmacologists and there are bold pharmacologists, but there are no old, bold pharmacologists. So if you're testing a new drug, what you do, a drug that you have just made, a drug that you've extracted or made that no human being has ever taken in the pure form, you start orders of magnitude below where you think it's effective. Most drugs are effective in the milligram range. A powerful drug is a drug that takes four or five milligrams. Mescaline takes 700 milligrams. To it. That's considered the effective dose in a 150-pound human being. So this fellow decided he would start way, way, way down, that he would start with half a milligram. That's 500 micrograms. The only family of compounds known to be active in that range uh, are LSD. And it was thought impossible. Albert Hoffman once said to me, he said, if you want to understand what getting a human being loaded on 500 grams of LSD is micrograms, if you want to understand what that's like, think of an ant that can tear the Empire State Building apart in two hours. <coughs> That's the relative size we're talking about here. So uh, this fellow took half a milligram of this compound and vaporized it in a pipe and sank to the ground in a complete state of psychedelic discombobulation and was astonished, as you can imagine. He didn't know what he had on his hands. Uh, so then he went into the literature and he discovered that some years before, chemists had isolated a compound out of this plant called alpha-salvinorine. So he wrote to uh, Aldrich Chemical or Merck or somebody, and asked for a chromatography standard. Uh, you all understand that chromatography is this technique where you can take a crude plant extract or a crude drug, put it into a machine, and by comparing it to known compounds, to their profiles in this machine, you can figure out what you've got. It can be. Yeah, GCMS. Yeah, gas uh, GCMS, gas chromatographic mass spectroscopy. Uh, 
So he got the chromatography standard for alpha-salvinorine and they sent him only three milligrams of it because these machines are incredibly sensitive. You don't need a lot. So he took the three milligrams and he took half a milligram of that and he smoked it. And exactly the same thing happened again. So then he knew that the compound was alpha-salvinorine. It's a sesquiterpene which may not mean much to anybody here, but what it means is it's in a, chemi a chemical family never previously known to contain any psychoactive drugs whatsoever. So here, 35, 40 years after LSD, coming from a plant is a psychoactive drug active in the microgram range and most people who've taken it believe one milligram is an enormous overdose uh, the dis I have taken the plant several times and find it to be completely fascinating uh, the way I do it uh, the reason I haven't done the pure compound is because uh, a friend of mine who's an MD and a clinical psychologist and who does drug research but who probably doesn't want his name mentioned here uh, he's as hard-boiled a character as there is and he took it and it completely knocked him off his pins for a couple of weeks there was great concern he could talk of nothing else and uh, during the experience, one of the somewhat disturbing aspects of this compound is you, unlike the psychedelics we're talking about here, you undergo a complete break with reality, but you don't stay still. You move around, you curse, you open and slam drawers, you, you, you rush around in a, in a strange and manic, fashion which you don't remember at all afterwards so we've created a protocol for doing it which is the rope em to a tree protocol <laughs> <coughs> which is very effective uh, and basically uh, tie people down restrain them uh, and then see what happens the descriptions of the pure compound by DMT test pilots are that it is at least as challenging and weirder in some ways and in a completely different direction. And the more sophisticated people have come back talking about some kind of geometric some kind of extreme spatial distortion. People talk about how the world unzips or the world rolls up or the world folds up and uh, people in this manic state sometimes appear to be trying to crawl into something. I mean, people get into a... <clears throat> if I could... I'm... Uh, I'm... Uh, Ah, ah, this kind of thing. Uh, well, fun is not uh, what we're here for. This is, uh, this is philosophy with the gloves off. <clears throat> yeah.
physical effects, uh, basically you lose consciousness. You don't lose continence, you don't vomit, uh, but you lose muscle tone. The, the descriptions of the trips are very, very anomalous and peculiar. For example, uh, one person I know, hardcore, took it and said that they some kind of, again, this spatial distortion, some kind of cubist thing where they could simultaneously see the inside and the outside of their body and not in x-ray vision, but somehow he said that his body was sliced. He was in many pieces and in the edges he could see into the meat and it was very confusing and visceral and so forth. Well, that was this person's first experience. Their second experience, they were very concerned. They wanted to have this experience again. And I saw this trip. Uh, they smoked it. And they were sitting there. And he flung his arm out. And I could tell by the look on his face that he was experiencing this inside-outside vision. And then his description was, uh, while he's trying to sort this out and stay calm and look at this and analyze what is happening, there's a tap on the shoulder, completely out of nowhere, turns, and there's a child standing there in a little uniform of some sort, like with a, like a Cub Scout, a beanie, some kind of uniform. And uh, this child says, uh, Father, to this childless, unmarried, 35-year-old guy, says, Father, and he just, his jaw hangs, and the child walked in front of him, and then began walking away, and he stood up to follow. And uh, at that moment, and this will seem unlikely to you, but the world is full of strangeness, at that moment, in that place, a large group of wild turkeys uh, who happened to be uh, having a weekend nearby uh, decided to take flight. And so there was this, suddenly the air was filled with this sound of wings. And as he looked at this kid, out of the back of the kid's shoulders, wings just metamorphosed. And the child rose into the air. And as he's standing there, looking at this, he feels an enormous weight growing on his shoulders and it pushes him down into the ground and his face is in the dirt and he can feel these wings sprouting out on him and then he loses consciousness. That's a very anomalous... It sounds like a dream. It does sound like a dream. Another person had a very interesting trip, again, the pure compound. He said... The first thing that happened was I found myself on the back porch 
of my aunt's house when I was a child. And as I tried to coordinate this environment, I found myself on the balcony of an apartment I had when I was at UCLA. And as I tried to come to terms with that, I found myself on the porch of a hotel I stayed at in southern Thailand two years ago. And so the conclusion was that this was some kind of a memory thing and that he had hit the porch file. (laughs) And there were just a bunch of porches backed up here. Porch A, porch B, porch C. Or it does sound like time travel to some degree. It, yes, he was on the porch course, going through all all adumbrations of porchness. It was a porch-specific experience. It metabolizes it fairly quickly. First of all, it's such a small amount, uh, and it goes away. Uh, my experience, now speaking from my own experience, is... Uh, uh, only with the plant, which I find quite challenging enough. And I really urge you to explore this. Number one, it's legal. Uh, number two, you can grow it in your apartment. It's a pretty plant. You don't have to kill it to use it. In other words, it isn't the roots, it's the leaves, and it's very willing to produce these leaves. Uh, I've done it a number of times, at first, it, it was elusive, and my attitude is always, if it's legal, it ain't going to work. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that just being a cynic and knowing how life works. Uh, but I took it, uh, the first time it worked, was, it was interesting, actually, how it approached me. I had been hearing about these horrendous pure compound trips, And somebody said, well, when are you going to do it? You've got to do it. How can you not do it? You're up there talking about all this. You have to do it. So I had a lot of confusion in my life, as usual at that time, and emotional upheaval and this and that. I was not eager to expose myself to this drug. But came the evening, and so I did. uh, And the way, here's how I do it. I weigh, and this is, I inject this incredibly technical concept of weighing the dose. I weighed 35 grams of it, and it was quite a pile. And then I, of leaves, fresh leaves. And then I removed the mid vein from these leaves in order to lower the volume so I could get it in my mouth. And then I rolled it up into this wad, which I could just barely get into my cheek by shoving it in. Then I lay down in darkness in a place where I can see a digital watch. And I uh, wait 15 minutes. And then I spit it out into a bowl right there without getting up, without moving much. I just roll over and spit it out. And about two to five minutes after that, you begin to get what's called streaming, 
I see it after orgasm. I think a lot of people do. It's some kind of low-level hypnagogia. It's not has no content, but it's a clue that you're on the edge of an altered state. Streaming. Well, so then after a couple of minutes of that, this thing began to work. But on this first trip, it was uh, absurd. It was little blue kittens and little pink bunnies, and they were doing kickstep uh, like the Rockettes in, in lines, and there were little bluebirds pulling ribbons through the scene that said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And I was looking at this and thinking, you know, a psychedelic drug for five-year-olds? <laughs> you know? Which, as I was experiencing it, you could have given it to any five-year-old and they would have been absolutely delighted. I mean, it was Sesame Street Saturday morning psychedelica for sure. Well, so after about 20 minutes or 10 minutes of this, I said, look, so I'm chicken shit, but not this chicken shit. You know, is this, is this it? And basically that was it for that trip. And so the next time I took it was uh, under somewhat more dramatic conditions. I was alone in a tent, in a rainforest, in a jungle, uh, and uh, and I zipped up my my tent so it was totally dark. And there were two very interesting things about this trip. The first thing was, incontrovertibly, I could see in total darkness. I mean, as I sat there waiting for this stuff to come on, in and it was an overcast night, and I was, it was dark. But slowly, in this strange silvery blue light, I could see all the ribbing of the tent and all the seams and everything. And then, when the hallucinations began, it was like. Uh, Invisible hands shuffling a deck of iridescent blue cards. And there was just watching this. And, you know, ayahuasca is associated with deep blue hallucinations, cerulean hallucinations. This was better. These were, this was an amazing journey into blueness of some sort. Then the next time I did it... Um, yeah, I do it the same way every time. I weigh it, yeah. Pardon me? I have smoked the leaves with no effect. Some some people get off quite stiffly that way. I found fairly fresh dried leaves. One standard tobacco pipe full, which I guess was about a half a gram of leaves. Two or three large leaves, and uh, very intense. Uh, about a ten-minute visual. Did it work the first time? Not as much as the second time. Yeah, there seems to be some learning curve, or you, you know, keep after it if it's yeah, not it working. Me, it, uh, how small of a, uh, a dose seemed to be effective compared to what I had heard. 
Yeah, I mean, my brother, who is fairly hard to move off the dime, he was at some conference and stepped outside and somebody offered him a hit on a joint of this stuff and the next thing he knew, he had sunk to his knees and was just surrounded by... Um, the the last time I did it <coughs> was more I uh, more uh, it, it's getting more and more dramatic. The last time I did it, I was alone in a room with a big skylight, and it was a full moon night. And normally, under those circumstances, you would that's the perfect situation in which to hallucinate. Um, silvery moonlight, many dark edges and deep shadows. With my eyes open, absolutely nothing was happening. And when I would close my eyes, it was like turning on a light in a dark room. It was that fast. There was no lag time. When I closed my eyes, there was waiting a three-dimensional, highly colored, very bright, undulating environment. Uh, some of you may know the paintings of the surrealist painter Yves Tanguay, these kind of melting, stretching things in these mauve landscapes. Uh, and uh, and at that, on that trip, there was actually a kind of a voice. And what it said was, and this may explain what goes on with these people who smoke the pure stuff, because what the voice was saying was, walk into it, walk into it. And I said, no, if I walk into it, I'll stumble over furniture, I'll, I'll fall down. It said, no, no, walk into it. And because there's no lag time in producing these hallucinations, Closing your eyes is like opening your eyes. And then there's this place, and it has an extremely intense sense of place. It's hard to tell yourself, this is a drug. It doesn't look like a drug. It looks like somewhere. Um, now, the only other thing I can tell you about this, and this is fascinating to botanists, is uh, this plant is known only from this very small area in southern Mexico. The people who use it are Mazatec Indians. They call it hojas de la pastora, the leaves of the shepherdess. Uh, this is, a, first of all, an odd name, hojas de la pastora, at first, you would, you know, these people have been under the thumb of the Catholic Church for several centuries. There are no shepherdesses in the Christian tradition. We got shepherds there at Christmas night. There are no shepherdesses. I mean, why is it the leaves of the shepherdess? More startling, uh, these people are Mazatec Indians. They don't speak Spanish except as a remote second language of a conquering people. So when you say to them, what do you call it in Mazatec? They say, we have no name for this in Mazatec. Well, that's a clue. Any anthropologist, any ethnographer would tell you that means that they cannot have had this plant for very long and it cannot be very deeply grounded in their culture. Uh, 
it would be like us referring to wine as Beaujolais or something. I mean, it just does not happen. So, and this plant is known from nowhere else on earth. So here we have this endemic plant known by an Indian tribe, but a tribe that has no name for it in their own language. Uh, the suggestion is that it uh, could have been brought from somewhere else, but where? And could have been recently discovered, but how? And why would it be named in Spanish anyway? Yeah. What if Volhos is really Volhos? Volhos are eyes. Then it's eyes of the shepherd. Does that make more sense? Or if there's something lost in between the... the Well, it is called the the divining mint. Divination means seeing, seeing into the future. So it could be the eyes of the shepherdess. But again, who is the shepherdess? Well, being as the shepherdess, and that's not endemic in Western European, it could be a slant, it could just be a cover, it could be a thing. So how we're pressed by the Spaniards, they just sort of blank it out, and it's like double-speaking. Yeah, I mean, it's a complex ethnographic problem. We know that the Spanish suppressed the mushrooms because we have their chronicles. We don't have any Spanish uh, mention of this plant. And, you know, there are Zapotecs, Mixtecs, uh, other tribal people in the same area. They don't know from it, you know. It's a very indemnified local hallucinogen. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on that, except that, you know, in practical terms, this is a plant you can obtain, you can grow, you can advocate, you can do therapy with it, you can do anything you want with it, because it is legal. And uh, But the pharmacological profile is unknown, the pharmacodynamics are unknown, and uh, what will come out of this is not clear. This plant is closely related to coleuses, and... Uh, coleuses have for a long time had a reputation that there was something funny going on there. Well, now there is this new analytical technique called... um, uh, I can't remember the acronym, but it involves using um, liquid CO2 as the solvent rather than, say, petroleum ether or alcohol or chloroform or something like that. If you use liquid CO2 as a solvent, you get out microgram quantities of things which would otherwise be destroyed by the heat of ordinary chemical extraction. So they've gone into the salvia and into these coleuses, and there's an entire family of these uh, diterpene psychoactive compounds, all uh, microgram active, and none have their pharmacology yet characterized. So if you are a research pharmacologist or a drug designer, check the literature on this. This is a really interesting area to work, and who knows? what treasures will be found along these new chemical pathways, yeah. Um, you mentioned this one experience you had where 
it was hard to remember that it was a drug and we talked about how it felt like a friend. Do you ever forget it's a drug? The only time I've ever forgotten it was a drug was on ketamine. Ketamine, tr see what I like about DMT especially, but all these alkaloids is in a certain very important sense they do not affect my mind. They affect my visual pathway, they affect my perception, they uh, affect my somatic self-image, but the part of me that is watching, the part of me that is saying pay attention, remember, analyze, understand, is not ever interrupted. On ketamine, I lost the concept drug. Well, once you lose the concept drug, you don't know where you are. You can't remember that it was ever any different. You wonder why this question is being asked. And then if after a few minutes of this, suddenly you have this revelation. I'm stoned. That's what's happening. And then it's like it all comes rushing in at once. That's right. That's it. I took a drug. I'm a human being who took a drug. I'm a human being who took a drug who's lying on the floor of an apartment in Santa Monica with friends. And, and you say, oh, got it. Now I know what to do with it. And I watch and then you have the trip. But before that... There's just this vaguely posed question like, what? <laughs> yeah. And so I found that not, not so useful. Uh, if, it destroys the, if it destroys the recording apparatus of the experience, uh, then you're not taking a lot out of it. Uh, and, and ketamine is known for that. I mean, people cannot say very much about it. People have a lot of trouble saying much about some of, about many of these things. I think that's a learned uh, skill, narrative ability, to, to keep your wits about you in those places and to try and bring back some kind of coherent metaphor. It's very difficult because you're essentially trying to download a higher dimension into... A, not only three-dimensional space, but three-dimensional space linguistically defined by American culture and historicity and so forth and so on. But to the degree that you can slowly move the benchmarks out, that's where we learn something. You know, We need to build collective models. Uh, you know, the strange thing about opium is that it's so endlessly fascinating while it's happening and there's just nothing to be taken out of it. It, it apparently does not transcript into short-term memory. And I've seen this with other drugs. This is definitely a real issue. Some drugs apparently do not download themselves into RNA transcription for memory retention. And so you have an extremely full experience in the moment, but the moment it's over with, all you can say is, 
boy, that was strange. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, the idea that the observer alters what is observed just by the act of observing of observing. It seems like if you're trying to chart where you are and record it so that you can remember it and recollect it later while it's happening that you're imposing a lot of limits on what could happen if you didn't do that if you didn't try to download it into description yeah have you ever done that where you suspended that and then saw what you could get from it afterwards well what happens is the the state begins to come on and and I begin to describe it to myself but in most trips there comes a place where it outdistances description and then you go into a place where you deal with it in real time moment by moment but you bring nothing out of that DMT is particularly like this. Well, can I just say, it seems like you would maybe bring nothing out of it for research purposes, but just for personal um, revelations or or transcendent experience, it seems like you could even go deeper into it, but maybe lose the research value. Well, how can you tell? (laughs) How it changes your life. Oh, how it changes your life. Sure. Uh, Obviously, these things have effects which are not verbalizable, but I don't think you enhance those effects by ceasing to attempt to verbalize. In other words, attempting to describe it doesn't take anything away from it because uh, description will always fail. It's very... uh, You know how... uh, you can have a very complex dream and then the alarm rings and by the time literally that your feet hit the floor it's gone and you can almost feel the pieces the fragments flying out through space as you try to hold and then it's gone well what's happening there is the dream is also being shunted around RNA transcription you can't remember it because you have no memory of it. And, uh, and that's what these high-dose drug states are. A friend of mine likes to say about psilocybin that every time he takes it, the goal is to stand more, to, to tolerate more. And as you build, you, you ha- it tests your metaphors, you know. Can you build a net that can hold this beast? Or does it eventually rip free and dash into the jungle of your mind and, to, and disappear? What I like to do is, <coughs> I always use a voice-activated tape recorder, which is just lying there. And when I come to certain spots, where I can compress the experience into a word or something that helps me later when I listen to it to get the full spectrum of the experience that I only was having like 
shining a tiny little dot on one aspect and later listen to it, I can see the whole picture. Yeah, I've used voice-activated tape recorders and uh, it's a good technique. It's a crude technique. I mean, I have a number of tapes where I clear my throat 400 times. <clears throat> and, and that's the recorded record of that trip. But, but you're right. At any moment, you could say, uh, and I have, you know, little poetic aphorisms or little reminders. And, and, I, and that's a good, that's an excellent technique. Uh, I know it can destroy the experience by trying to say it but it has helped me very often to get a full, meaningful uh, picture and something that I can do something with it. Well, I think that the ultimate impact of these things is on community and society, and so it's very important to be able to share. In all cultures where this is a big deal, people talk. It's as important to tell your trip as it is to have mm. the trip. Uh, yeah. Um, I think something I wanted to ask you, something you mentioned before when you were talking about um, <coughs> being cocaine in a room full of noise and doing things that are putting yourself in a setting that inhibits the drug, and you said doing it by yourself, you know, a heroic dose staring at the sky or whatever. And, I agree with all that. I understand a lot of what you say, a lot of what you say. But when you're talking about community, I know that like sometimes when you smoke a joint, if you share it with people, you get more people high than if you smoke the joint just by yourself. I also know like in Grateful Dead shows, I've been there uh, like mushrooms on psilocybin when I know the community there's more going on than just that I would get by myself sitting at the beach or being in my dark in a darkened room with that same dose it seems it's brought up when you're in a, you know, when you're in a room with a bunch of people all on still side and dancing to music there seems to be to me a greater high a greater community high than, although there are times when it's good just to be by yourself and figure out your own trip but there's sometimes it seems that the community is really important yeah I think this is a this is a thing of preference and taste I mean I am basically hermetic, cool, withdrawn, uh, you know, I'm not a party boy particularly, uh, I can do it, but my natural inclination uh, is, is to go the other way. The people who I am totally in awe of are therapists whose idea of a good time is to dose a dozen people and then help them work through uh, their trips. I just go gray at the very thought of that. Going like, to me, I'm doing like a bunch of cocaine and alcohol and going to a place listening to loud music as compared to, it's more like a therapist here with a group of friends and share a bunch of shrooms and like go like the Grateful Dead or something where there's lights and music and and it seems to me that I'm pretty, on my own, not into a party scene, but that's like different, there's a difference there to me between the cocaine, bright light, drug scene, and the kind of cosmic, you know, when the open Coliseum becomes a spaceship and everybody's floating around. But the people, I think, who enjoy those situations the most are the people who uh, 
have taken a light dose. In, in other words, I've had many people describe going to dead shows and doing too much and just having to find a dark place or get to the parking lot or to deal with it because a little psychedelic makes everything fascinating and inviting and enfolding. A lot brings on deeper issues and deeper insights for some people. I mean, it's very, it's very uh, individual and close my eyes and do alone. That situation then where it's all and then can you know close my eyes and I can be in my test position even though I'm working surrounded by people. But also in a situation like that, because that that was my introduction to um psilocybin to a great convention. Um it seems like you can do a lower dose because the music potentiates sure. more and and the energy. Because it's it's very it's very sacramental, you know, for people who get into it at that level, and it, it just seems like you get you, you get high from the surroundings anyway, from the music, and then with psilocybin or a or whatever, it would really potentiate it. Yeah, it's that the morphogenetic field is very very strong, uh, and it's very positive. Well, simply the sum total of all the Grateful Dead shows and of all the dead heads and of all the talk about the Grateful Dead show, you come into an aura where expectations of what is going to happen are very strong and defined, where if you go alone, you know, you basically have reduced the environment to your own body and past history. And, and also these things are steerable. You know, you can you can keep it at the surface if you want, or you can keep you can take it to depth. I mean, I dialogue with it, and I say, you know, I've had <clears throat> conversations with it where I say, after hours and hours, show me what you are for yourself. And it's like the temperature drops 20 degrees. There's an enormous organ tone like the Bach B minor mass. And black velvet curtains begin to rise on something so mind-boggling and appalling that after about 30 seconds of that, you just say, enough already. Let's go back to the dancing mice and the rest of it. This Because... It, it it seems to know what your limits are, and it's willing to let you test those limits. But there is no doubt that there are things not only that no one has ever looked upon, but that no one can ever look upon because because because. Uh, Do you think you're exploring anything more than your own lawful genetic field? Well, that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Is there anything here? But, is there anybody in here but me <laughs> and my fears and my hopes and my projections and my complexes and my? Uh, eventually, I think maybe this question just gives way to the realization that it, it's a pointless distinction. You know, uh, you you have to deal with this world if you choose to. Uh, people can go from birth to the grave and never have a psychedelic 
experience, or maybe they have it at the brink of the grave, but we don't hear about that. Uh, but it is an avoidable dimension in life. And some people have one psychedelic experience, and that is fine. They now know that the world has edges, and they stay far away from those edges, uh, <laughs> from thence forward. Uh, it's a particular taste. Uh, people say, you know, it's not for everybody. It certainly isn't. People who, uh, you know, I consider it a kind of athletic undertaking, roughly similar to rock climbing or windsurfing or something like that. It's important to be in good physical shape. It's important to be in good mental shape. And it's also important to take yourself lightly enough that if it slams you, you can climb back on your board without too much self-doubt and introspection. Because it will. It's like surfing. But a, a curious thing about it is and maybe this applies to surfing too, I don't know, but there is something like beginner's luck. I have heard people say, you know, call it silly cybin, or say they've never had a bad trip on mushrooms. Well, congratulations. You know, just keep your fingers crossed because it's a very, very tricky, delicate, balance and uh, you learn as much from the the deep hard trips if not more than you learn from the find something some people trip and find what's going on something terrible and other people sometimes you can just observe it like you said and you go wow what's going on here and it's maybe terrible and frightening but you you accept it, and some people don't want to accept whatever's terrible and frightening and back away from it or whatever. Well, there are different kinds of terrible and frightening things. There is discovery of something in your own past, traumatic, that you lost. That's rare, but devastating. There's also uh, fear of madness. This is my particular thing. I don't think these things can kill me, but I'm very aware that uh, that mind is a fragile construct, and I have been in places where had I stayed there, they just would have warehoused me in some back ward and checked in once a week and cleaned me up and and that's where I would stay. And I wonder if the people who are in that position, what is going on for them. It's, t it's horrifying to think that some of these places you pass through for a few moments might persist for hours, days, weeks. Cross your eyes because you keep doing that to stay like that. Yeah. Uh, in my experience, it's very, very rare. And people who have terrible difficulties with psychedelics usually show all the signs of being unstable or marginal before they go into it. So, you know, it isn't a case of everybody has to prove themselves. It's more like this is a calling. It's, uh, it's for edge runners. And in human society, the way it's worked is to deputize 
people, call them shamans, seers, visionaries, DMT test pilots. And, you know, a test pilot is a good metaphor. I mean, a test pilot is cool. A test pilot can eject at three times the speed of sound as part of a day's work. If you don't have those kinds of nerves, and why should you, why should any of us have that kind of terrible cool, uh, then some of these things are probably contraindicated. Do you have any colleagues that have kind of unraveled psychedelically and not reconstituted? No. Uh, Some people say, I'm the only known case. Uh, but it's not unusual to hear stories of people being thrown for a loop for a week or more. And a week is a long, long time to wander in the land of the shades. Uh, there was a woman at this Mexico trip, I won't use her name, but the wife of a famous chemist and a psychoanalyst on her own, a published author, and uh, she described a, a ten-day wandering. And uh, uh, in my book, um, True Hallucinations, I describe a, a, a two-week episode that overcame my brother and I. Uh, the wonderful thing about the human psyche and the human brain is its thirst for equilibrium, you know, and it's it's many modes and methods for returning you to equilibrium. Nobody has ever nailed down what, if any, the connection of this stuff is to severe mental illness. You know, in the 50s, it was all thought it was going to be pretty simple, that there was something called a schizogen, and that if we could just isolate it out of the blood of schizophrenics, that we would discover it to be an abnormal tryptamine metabolite or something like that. All that talk has died away. The situation is much more complicated. Uh, People thought, well, DMT is so weird, surely schizophrenics must have more of it than normal people. They have less of it than normal people. Uh, For you personally, when you're in dark spaces like that, how do you uh, write yourself I always have cannabis ready. (laughs) I just, it's the rudder of the boat, basically. The ballast, the rudder. I always have cannabis ready, and then uh, deep breathing, and more importantly, song. It's really, usually, these states which you think of as psychedelic hells, if you have sufficient presence of mind to analyze them, or if somebody's observing you, what's happening is that your breath is failing, shallow breathing. And some people don't have presence of mind enough to deep breathe, even if you smack them around and tell them to deep breathe. So what you say to them is, sing, sing. And this establishes oxygen moving through the body, and it also establishes a task. 
which focuses people and they quickly discover that it's interesting that the song is blue with violet speckling and by undulating it you can bring in yellow and the the key when you're having a bad trip is to make your wine mind wander from the bummer you know and an interesting thing to know about fear maybe the most important thing to know about fear is that it's a reaction in your body which has a very short-term chemical foundation. No one can be petrified with terror longer than five minutes. It just gives way to something else, reflection on petrification, if nothing else. So, uh, you know, I like to quote the guy who wrote Dune, Herbert. What's his first name? Frank Herbert. Who, there's a drug in Dune, you may recall, called the Water of Life or Strewn that allows you to navigate through time and but you can get really lost in it. And he says, the fear comes. It comes like a wind and you must just allow it to blow through you. So the way I deal with fear is I don't move and I sing and inevitably... I can march my way out of the most of most states of discomfort. There are different kinds of bummers. There's an extreme discomfort with how the situation feels, and that can usually be handled with song. And then there's a more serious kind of bummer, which I call a cognitive hallucination. What a cognitive hallucination is, is a hallucination, but not one you see, but one that you discover and think. And it can be anything, it could be, um, well, you could discover uh, a tumor in your brain. This would be a cognitive hallucination until you are confirmed by a doctor that you have this thing. Or or you could discover a demon living within you. Or in playing back a recent conversation that seemed harmless, you could discover that really it was filled with vicious, destructive innuendo that you hadn't noticed before. This is the edge of paranoia. And basically, you have to discipline yourself. Uh, As I'm sure you know, the brain has what's called a fight and flight response. In many situations, the brain will just offer up these two choices. Fight, meaning raise blood pressure, turn and face it, or uh, flight, get away from it as fast as possible. Actually, neither of these is the correct response. The correct response is to deep breathe, oxygenate your blood, and wait for the thing to pass by. And whatever works for you. I mean, I pray, and I pray going into it. And I say to it, uh, you know, please be kind. I am completely at your mercy. And what I do is I take large enough doses 
that I am at its mercy. You cannot cheat the house. <clears throat> so do not try to take, like there is nothing worse than a half dose of psilocybin. Nothing worse. Because it leaves you in a real wasteland. So I say to it, you know, I have taken enough that I am your creature. You can destroy me. You can exalt me. Please exalt me. If you can't exalt me, please be brief. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've never not made it back. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I guess that I shouldn't let this pass because, uh, well, I'm sure that you also noticed that Terence's example of what he called cognitive hallucinations was that of a tumor in the brain. And as you know, less than five years after he made this comment, Terence died from a tumor in his brain. And uh, there have been other references like that that we've heard from him in the past. It was almost as if his lectures were foreshadowing his death. But then again, uh, hey, who among us hasn't at one time or another worried about having a tumor in our brain? Or am I the only other person who has ever entertained that possibility? Interestingly, uh, at least to me, <laughs> while I sometimes had that thought when I was much younger, in my old age, uh, the thought of a brain tumor no longer is something that comes through my mind. My guess is that uh, something other than a brain tumor will be what finally lays me low. Uh, hopefully not for a while, though. <laughs> anyway, uh, what did you think about Terence's uh, salvia experience uh, with the little kittens doing a kick step? <laughs> for what it's worth, uh, that's actually one of the more pedestrian experiences on salvia that I've heard. Of all the psychoactive substances that I've taken or heard about, overall, salvia comes with more bizarre experience reports than almost all of the others combined. It's a truly unique experience, uh, from what I've been told. <laughs> As I've mentioned before, I happen to be, uh, sadly for me, one of the 25% or so of us humans who don't seem to have the receptors required to experience a full-blown salvia trip. I won't go back into it again right now, but if you go to our program notes, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, click the link for categories and scroll down to the salvia category. And there you'll see that in addition to this program, there have been 10 others in which we've discussed this amazing plant. And my recommendation is for you to begin with my podcast number 81, which is an interview with the man that Terrence called the guy from L.A., <laughs> but he didn't name him. You see, back then, with the exception of Terrence and a few others, we were all trying to keep a very low profile when it came to psychedelics, and uh, Terrence was very sensitive about that. However, uh, today, that man from L.A., Daniel Siebert, is quite well known, and I also want to add that he is a truly nice person. So, I'd suggest that you begin with my interview with Daniel if you want to look into this interesting little houseplant. And in case you are new to the salon, you should also be aware that it is no longer legal everywhere. Uh, it is legal in many places, but even here in the States, its uh, legality varies from state to state. And just in case you don't do your homework properly and read everything that you can find about salvia before trying it, here is one very important thing to know about the experience. What Terrence said about the rope em to a tree protocol wasn't all in jest. 
Salvia, uh, along with ayahuasca, is a substance that should never, as in never, be done alone. Always have a sitter by your side. If you only learn one thing from these podcasts, I hope you learn this. Salvia divinorum can, and often does, cause people to physically act out their experience in ways that can be quite dangerous to themselves and to others as well. This uh, really isn't something to do as an amateur psychonaut. Get some experience with other things first. You know, salvia most definitely is not for beginners. Now, one of the other things that I've learned, uh, not through doing it myself, but by seeing what happened to some people I was with, is that, uh, in my opinion, if someone is using prescription SSRIs of any kind, they should wean themselves off those substances for weeks before ingesting any psychedelic substance. I've seen and heard about more near-death situations involving SSRIs than I care to think about. And this isn't just a casual, be-careful-out-there comment. SSRIs and synthetic psychoactive substances, uh, like 2CT7 and its relatives, are most definitely not to be used by anyone who hasn't effectively gotten all SSRIs out of their system first. Now, getting back to what Terrence said in his description of people taking drugs in Mexico, (laughs) well, those are no doubt descriptions of the goings-on at the legendary and theobotany conferences that were held in Palenque, Mexico. In fact, uh, his image of a woman with a syringe of ketamine in one hand and a bottle of tequila in the other brings back some rather fond memories. Uh, (laughs) But since most of the people involved in these adventures are still alive, I need to be more discreet for now. Actually, maybe I should do some podcasts that tell all, names and everything, and then seal them away to be listened to a few decades after I die. And that little announcement may send some shutters down a few spines. But for now, the only thing that I feel free to say is that a good time was had by all. And for what it's worth, I am also one of those people who, with the exception of ayahuasca and salvia divinorum, have for the most part always used psychedelic drugs by myself. Because I found that if there's even one other person involved, then my trip is subject to what is also going on with them. Shared psychedelic experiences can be great for a lot of things. But if you're basically an introspective person, like me for example, then there's nothing wrong with you if you like doing psychedelics alone. Now, I know that Terrence promotes doing them in silent darkness, and uh, I've tried that, but I prefer candlelight music when I do them. I don't think a little candlelight and some well-selected music makes uh, much difference. Uh, In a negative direction, I find it positive, actually. I've done it both ways, but the silent darkness just isn't something that works that well for me. As I've said before, what Terrence McKenna or anyone else experiences on a particular substance isn't necessarily what you are going to experience. For example, Terrence said that on ketamine, he lost the concept of having taken a drug. Now, I've had a few high-dose IM ketamine experiences. However, during them, I never lost sight of who I was or that I was doing a drug. I was still me. I was having an extraordinary experience, but I was still me and knew I was on a drug. Actually, uh, you should read about these substances and talk to people who have experience with them before ever trying them yourself, and uh, then you'll have the knowledge that you need to navigate your own unique psychedelic experience. My point is that you are your own person, and just because Terrence or myself or someone else recommends something, that doesn't mean that it is the one and only best way to do things. Find your own path, or 
I guess that I should say, create the path for yourself that works best for you. Be your own person. Think for yourself and question authority. All authority, as the good Dr. Leary often said. And to answer a question that I get quite a lot, my music selections usually vary quite a bit, depending on my mood and what I intend to get out of the experience. However, whenever I take a mushroom trip, I almost always begin with the same music while I'm waiting for the psilocybin to begin taking effect. And about 30 minutes after first ingesting them, I put on what I'm sure that Terence would consider to be about the worst thing that I could be listening to at the time. <laughs> but for some reason, it really sets me up for a good trip. I probably shouldn't even tell you this, but the first cut that I often listen to is track number 8 from the Shaman's Boss Drum album. Here's how it begins. If the truth can be told so as to be understood, it will be believed. And now that I've put my own mind in a place that brings back such fond memories, I think that I'll sign off and uh, re-listen to one of what I call my mushroom tapes, which are the private recordings that I made while under the influence of our wonderful mushroom friends. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. If the truth can be told so as to be understood, it will be